Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. See you on the other side, episode 230. Happy New Year. That's right, the first episode we recorded in 2019. Welcome to the Blade Runner future, everybody. (laughs) Did you enjoy, you guys enjoy your flying cars this week? (laughs) Very much so, very much so. Yes, Uh, Madison became a a futuristic film noir as the clock changed from uh, 11.59 to midnight. It's been great. I've got my own replicant uh, at home. Uh, of course, I picked the pleasure model. <laughs> of course, uh, for myself. <laughs> anyway, uh, so welcome to see you on the other side. I'm Mike uh, from the Madison Ghost Tour, American Ghost Walks. With me is Wendy with the band Sunspot, and we're also with Scott, our buddy from What's Your Ghost Story dot com. Thanks for having me back. You bet. And then coming to us from Brewtown, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, is Hey, I'm T. Krulos. Thanks for having me back on. See you on the other side. Thanks for joining us today, guys. And if you guys haven't read any of T's work, uh, make sure you check out his pretty sweet books. He's got uh, a book about hunting Bigfoot, monster hunters, heroes in the night about real life superheroes. And you got a new book coming out too, right, T? Yes. uh, April 2nd is the release date. Uh, which I think they chose because they didn't want to have an April 1 release date. Good call. Because no one would believe this actually <laughs> happened. Well, that one's called Apocalypse Any Day Now. Awesome. Well, we're looking forward. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a while. But first, we're going to talk about our favorite paranormal and weird stories all week. I'll kick it off with a particular story that, to tell you the truth, I could not take uh, my mind off it all week. I've been thinking about it. And that's because I, I read the book of... The Terror. And if you guys uh, don't know what the uh, Lost Franklin Expedition is, uh, let me tell you about it. So this is a British expedition to find the Northwest Passage. So, Mike, what's the Northwest Passage? Well, it's a trade route through the Arctic where Europeans could sail to Asia with having to go under South America. Because at this time, the Spanish still or owned like the Horn of Good Hope or whatever. And so because the British were always, everybody's always fighting each other. It's Europeans. They hate each other. Um, (laughs) They they didn't want to have to like sail under South America every single time. And the Panama Canal wasn't built yet. So they're in the 19th century, they're dying to find a way to go through Canada to get to Asia. So they were looking for this Northwest Passage and they launched this expedition in 1845. There are two ships, the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror. Right. Such a badass name. Yeah, that's got to (laughs) be the sweetest sounding name for a ship ever. And it, it, the thing is, this is an exploratory mission. So you figure, why would they call (laughs) the ship the Terror? What a welcome Why would they call the ship the Terror, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, to seek out new life forms, to scare the (laughs) piss out of them. No, so the HMS Terror, uh, the reason they called it that was originally a warship. Before it was an exploratory ship. Ah, okay, that ship. makes a lot more sense. It actually, it actually fought in the War of eighteen twelve. So wow. that, yeah, you know, so the terror, uh, like, probably burned the United States Capitol. Tore him a new one. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so, so you get these two ships that had already been on several expeditions. Like the thing is, the Erebus and the Terror had been on an expedition to the Antarctic just a few years before. Ah, okay. So, so it was not unfamiliar territory completely. That's right. So you get. Uh, Captain James Ross is the guy that led them around uh, the Antarctic, and he's he's like a massive stud. When he get when he get no when he gets back to England, like women love him, men want to be him. Like this, so this guy, Captain James Ross, is a total stud. He comes back, and the British are feeling top of the world. You know, this is the middle of the nineteenth century. The sun never sets on the British Empire, and they're thinking, you know what? We only have like three hundred miles left of the Arctic shoreline to navigate away through the Northwest Passage. Wow. And this time we're going to do it. <laughs> and they're feeling good about it. So they ask Captain James Ross to do it. And he's like, no way. 
<laughs> Life is good now. He's I'm right. enjoying the ladies. He's, and the- he's, he's living his rock star life, Scott. It's like the same reason why George R.R. Martin doesn't write any more books. Uh, yeah. Like he, he gets just to stay at the top of your game forever. Yeah, just he gets stay to en- right there. He gets to enjoy the fact like George R.R. Martin is like a guest on The Tonight Show right. and stuff now. Like 20 years ago, we were ever like, yeah, <laughs> that guy looks like Santa Claus with a Greek sailor hat on. Put him on The Tonight Show. Anyway. So James, so they, who actually doesn't really want to go, but his wife wants him to go is this, yeah, John Franklin. She's got ulterior motives there. (laughs) His wife, Lady Franklin is very ambitious and Mm. she like pushes because he's 59 years old at the time and he's been on several successful Antarctic expeditions and Arctic expeditions before. In fact, in the British media, he was known as the man who ate his boots Mm. because one expedition they ran out of food and they had to like boil their shoe leather. Oh, wow. Wow. Like beef jerky. So long before Charlie Chaplin did it in a film. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. John Franklin did this and that saved their men's lives. Wow. His men's lives. Um, anyway, so they send him out uh, in 1845. So it's supposed to be an easy mission, um, but they disappeared and several expeditions were sent out to find what happened. There was even a bounty of 20,000 pounds, which was worth at the time worth a hundred thousand us 1847 dollars or whatever at that time and to find them. And the one who who's trying to find them the most is Lady Franklin. She's petitioning the king. She's petitioning parliament. She comes to America and petitions Zachary Taylor, President Taylor, to try and go find uh, her husband, the lost expedition. What happens is we know what we know happened to them is uh, they got stuck um, by this King William Island uh, way up in the – it's where Santa lives basically. <laughs> so they, they get stuck up there for – a couple of winters. And what happens is when you get stuck in the winter, they got provisions for three years. They would just wait around until the summertime hit, the ice would melt, and then they would keep going through to the Northwest Passage. But what happened was the spring and the summer, the ice never thawed. So you have two years in a row where the ice never thaws. And then what happens is they abandon the ships, they go out, and later on, when explorers are going to find them, there's like 30 different expeditions that go to find them. And like 10 years later, one expedition talks to the local Inuit people that had contact with the explorers, and they said that the crew had resorted to cannibalism by the end. Most of the bodies were never found. They, they already ate the boots. <laughs> they, they ate the boots and then <laughs> they, they ate each other. People. But what happens is that it's, it's this great mystery, this lost Franklin expedition. And so people have been writing books about it, even Michael Palin from Monty Python wrote a book about it a few years ago. And there starts to be more interest in it. Number one, in 2007, an author named Dan Simmons writes a fictionalized version of the events called The Terror. And AMC just made it into a, a, a miniseries that came out last summer. It was awesome. And the, the, the book is awesome. Um, and so that renews interest. But also because of climate change, which whether it's a liberal conspiracy or not, climate change is making the uh, the polar ice caps melt a little bit. So the thing is that way through the Northwest Passage is way easier to go through now than ever before. Mm. But this is in territorial Canada, right? And so it's not even officially part of a country. So what's happening is Canada wants to start staking claim to these areas. So they launched, a, the prime minister at the time, Stephen Harper, is like, we are going to find the Erebus and the Terror. And he says that in 2008. And it's really saying it so they can start laying a claim to this area because people are going to be able to ship through the Northwest, the real Northwest Passage very, very soon. Anyway, I know you guys find politics fascinating, but we'll fast forward here. <laughs> what happened was... Last month, we have an article uh, on the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company, and it's all about the Franklin curse and how the local Inuit people, the, the Nunavut, and I apologize if I'm, if I'm saying it wrong, they all live in this place called Gjoa Haven. And of course, I butchered that as well because I don't speak uh, Inuit, unfortunately. Get the Duolingo, man. It's awesome. <laughs> all right. <laughs> And and the reason that they are feeling superstitious and there's some kind of Franklin curse is because in 2014, they find the Erebus just by accident. Wow. So the official, yeah, the official (laughs) Canadian expedition does not find it, but this guy who's like doing some exploring and stuff. He's just going for a swim. Like it's like a helicopter pilot, you know, finds him. And he's not just going for a swim in the Arctic Ocean. (laughs) Just taking a dip. Taking a dip. Talk about shrinkage. (laughs) (laughs) So. So they find the Erebus and now they're like, okay, are we going to find the terror ever? Well, it's funny. So AMC greenlights 
the oh, cool. the television version of the terror in like March of 2016, and like two months later, they actually find the HMS terror. And what 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 I like about yeah. this when we were talking about this in the hangout the other day uh, with our Patreons is Wendy's like, well, maybe when people started hearing about the series, everybody started getting this idea in their head about the Lost Franklin expedition. The collective mm-hmm. consciousness yes. focused on it. And maybe that helped people find it. Um, shortly after the Erebus was found in 2014, uh, some of the native shaman the, the, called the Guardians of the Inuit, they came up from uh, Gajoa Haven and they performed a blessing on the ship of the Erebus. Now, they did not perform that same blessing. Oh. On the terror. Uh-oh. And so this is in, in the CBC article, some residents of an Arctic hamlet located near the Franklin shipwrecks have linked a spate of tragic deaths in the community to divers poking around the seafloor resting places of long dead crew members. Oh. They feel the wrecks are cursed and should not be disturbed, Parks Canada official Tamara Tarazov said. The thing is, six people died in this community, all within like a two-week period in August. And so there was a boating accident that killed two people. An older guy died, then somebody died of a sickness, and then there were two other deaths that also happened like quickly after. So it wasn't anything mysterious. This wouldn't be like big news if it were in a a larger, more highly populated area. Right. For the boating accident, oh, I'm sorry. So the other deaths were all-terrain vehicle rollover, the community elder passed, and this is all in two weeks. And so this is like, they describe it as a hamlet. (laughs) So it's obviously a tiny place. And yeah, it's like a big percentage of their population yeah a notable percentage <laughs> right and so people started getting nervous and they were thinking it's because they were disturbing the shipwrecks and they're having this conversation about what they're going to do because the thing is they're taking these artifacts out of the ships and they're going to make a museum there's going to be some tourist activity about this because interestingly enough this was uh, a, a f- very famous expedition that was lost that some americans went up and even the guy who was married to one of the Fox sisters, who were the one of the original spiritualists, like the Fox sisters created the seance. Right, right. Elijah Kane, uh, like the middle sister's husband, was one of the people who went oh, up wow. exploring on oh. one of the Franklin expeditions. And so people were even trying to find spiritualist methods of finding these lost people. Hmm. And so at the the meeting of like the like local association, while they were discussing what they're going to do with the museum and stuff, uh, some people were like, hey, uh, maybe we need the guardians to perform a blessing here because a whole bunch of people died. And we're not saying we're not saying it's the vengeful spirits from the Franklin yeah. expedition, <laughs> but it's totally the vengeful spirits from the Franklin expedition. <laughs> and so that just came out last month that the guardians did grab some sand. They grabbed some blessed sand from uh, Gajoa Haven <laughs> and- uh, they're they're guardians of the terror, which is the coolest name yeah. really is ever. Cool. Like, I want guardian of the terror to be on my gravestone. <laughs> Mike Huberty, guardian of the terror. That is, is so much higher octane than guardians of the galaxy. You know, that just takes them down a right, notch. Exactly. That's the whole galaxy. <laughs> right. And it doesn't even have to have a cheesy 70s soundtrack <laughs> to go with it. So after they had these things happen in the community of these deaths, the elders blessed sand and uh, the terror guardians brought it to the wreck of the terror and sprinkled it over the wreck and performed a blessing. And they were led by native Inuit from the area. Now, one of the guys who's like a local historian, he's like, it's all crap, this Franklin curse and stuff. He says it was always like that, even before these shipwrecks were found. But he does say that he accepts his mother's warnings that the whole King William Island has non-human <laughs> people we cannot see. Hmm. He said his mother used to warn him, don't let them get to you. Just do what you have to do. That's so ominous. He says when he travels with a friend across the tundra, he senses the presence of these beings. Of course, I love that cryptic message, that that instruction of do what you have to do, because we obviously all know what that would be. (laughs) What? (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You know what you have to do. No, it's it's right. It's it's You'll like in a, it's like in the movie where they like they give somebody a magical coin or whatever, and it's like, you know, just use this when you need it. Like, how will I know I need it? It's like, oh, you'll know. You'll know. No. Yeah. Yeah. I always feel like that's a writing cheat. You know, like you'll know. Like, does the coin glow? Because they never use it at the wrong time. Right. Yeah. You know. Well, that's because they know. Right. That's because they know. That's because it's magic. It's hand. We can hand that wave it away. Magic. 
But he does say, it's a funny feeling once we get to the other side of the island. You sense that somebody's around you, but there's nobody around you. And it's just, there's always a funny feeling we have every time we get on the other side. And that's the side, you know, closer to the wrecks. Um, but they, they talk about, you know, the tragic and mysterious Franklin story has inspired songs. There's paintings like Michael Palin's, uh, mm. there's Michael Palin's book and tons of other books about it. There's the terror. And now the terror is going to continue in a season two, but it's not going to be about the Franklin expedition. It's going to be like a German World War One submarine or something like that. A different one. Yeah, a, di- a different thing. So, which I think is a really cool idea. Yeah. I don't know if they're going to keep it as non fit. I mean, how they- many ships are there? I mean, how many? <laughs> right. They got to do one about the Mary Celeste. But I just thought it was, a re- I couldn't stop thinking about the story, number one, because it reminded me of the book. And the yeah. book really had an effect on cool. me. And number two, you know, just to see like this kind of spooky story about a curse uh, that happened right before Christmas. And then. Uh, the ship, like they announced that the show is going to be made, and then they find the ship like yeah, a month that later. The timing is uncanny. They've been searching for the ship for a hundred and seventy years. So not, not, now we have a good PR firm behind it. So you know, <laughs> grassroots baby, <laughs> right? So now, so now it worked. So I just thought the story of the Franklin is something that uh, I find is incredibly and, and interesting. Not, not that somebody has to be typecast and stay in their lane, but uh, what's the connection between Michael Palin? And this story, it's so, so unusual to hear this tale from a comedian, from a, a, a bizarre cross-dressing British comedian at that. Well, he did the travel show. He's done travel shows before. Mm-hmm. So. Like around the world in 80 days with Michael Palin and stuff like that. So he, like he's reinvented himself as a reality show adventurous type, almost in the um, Josh Gates mode, but without ex- exploring right. weird stuff. He's more like a mixture of... Josh Gates and Anthony Bourdain. Ah, uh, okay. That is <laughs> but cool. But his jokes are better. <laughs> I hope he gets a show and, and they do all of their reenactments in the Monty Python style animation. Oh, right. <laughs> oh my gosh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> right. Like, actually, like the Terry Gilliam's animation. Also, when they actually like show the Franklin ship, it's just a can of Spam in a bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. right. So that was my that was my favorite story uh, that I saw in the past That's week. That's a good one, Wendy. Wendy, what did you see in the past week that excited you? Well, Mike, this was one that you found and included in our paranormal newsletter, which, Ooh. by the way, you can uh, sign up for and get all the latest paranormal news every week, and you can do that at OtherSidePodcast.com. But the story that yes. really caught my attention last week was one of our favorite UFO sightings oh, locations. Yes. And that is Rendlesham Forest, Mm -hmm. Uh, the story of the UFO incident in the Rendlesham Forest, which happened around Christmas time in 1980. It was at the British Air Force base that actually the United States Air Force was operating out of at the time. And there were a series of sightings of mysterious lights, various sightings and psychic messages received and People claiming that they were abducted and brought into a ship and taken into a bunker, like where the nuclear weapons were being stored. And there's probably so many books on it that we could right. occupy ourselves for months. <laughs> it turns it turns from lights in the sky mm-hmm. and like the, them going out and seeing burn marks on the trees and indentations in the ground to all of a sudden missing time and being taken into a bunker and you right. know being in, being introduced like the aliens and the government are working together like it's a straight up Bob Lazar Area 51 under Rendlesham and they actually touched the UFO at one point exactly and they they refer to it a lot as the UK's version of Roswell because there's so much controversy around it and I was made aware of it when we attended the uh, Paradigm Symposium mm. in Minneapolis a couple of years back when we saw Peter Robbins do a presentation and he had co-written this book uh, left at East Gate along with Larry Warrens, who was supposedly one of the abductees. Right. Yeah. He's he's the guy that like the missing time guy. And he comes yeah. back and he, he's got this testimony that's crazy. Right. And at the time, this presentation that Peter Robbins gave was so compelling. He had so much evidence to say that it actually was aliens, that it was not, you know. Yeah. And Wendy um, was totally like, I would like to, su- I'm interested. <laughs> I would like to subscribe to your newsletter, sir. It really was. I was, I was blown away. <laughs> and also the fact that I hadn't heard of it before, which is just makes me ashamed of my paranormal. I have no paranormal credibility, but anyway, the article that you sent Mike is what some people claim to be a debunking of the UFO theory. And basically um, there's a researcher, David Clark, He's yep. a British X-Files expert. Not the Milwaukee sheriff with the cowboy hat. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine David Clark like coming out there like, I'm going to talk to you about aliens. I'm going to arrest you. So this is interesting because it, the article says that he had been researching the story for 
three whole years. <laughs> Holy crap. Which, you know, Peter Robbins had talked about decades of right. following up on all these different uh, leads regarding the story. But after his three years of research, he revealed that, in essence, it was a prank. <laughs> the lights and all the things that they, the UFO, the suspect activity was a prank that was played on the U.S. Air Force troops by some British Air Force special agents. The SAS. Yes, exactly. And their special forces, I guess they were kind of spying, kind of keeping an eye on the U.S. Air Force. So every once in a while they would like parachute in and sneak around. Right, sure. And supposedly one night they were doing that and they got caught because they didn't know that the radar was on or whatever. And then the U.S. guys were not amused whatsoever. So... They treated them roughly, and they, in fact, referred to them as alien <laughs> intruders. Uh, so rather than reporting this and you know having it out, they decided to get revenge. Ah. Uh, and their revenge was in the form of a prank in December 26th through 28th of 1980. So, All right. This story claims that those guys are responsible for all of the reports of the lights. You know, and there's there's been other debunking efforts that claim... You know, I guess apparently there was a big meteorite that was sighted around mm-hmm. the same time. And there was also a lighthouse theory that perhaps some of the lights were from a nearby lighthouse. But this is the first time I've heard this story of it being a prank. Well, the, the other problem is, is they actually, so Peter Robbins and Larry Warren oh, yes. wrote, left at Eastgate <laughs> in 1997 and Cosmo Books, uh, their publisher, well, Peter Robbins actually disowned the book after it came out. A couple of years ago, that Larry Warren was revealed to be lying about a whole bunch of different things. So he's like, if he lied about this stuff, can I really take his testimony on this yeah. missing time recovery and seeing aliens in the bunker and yep. like going down the deep elevator? Now, that's not to say something weird didn't really yeah. happen, but it almost sounds like Larry Warren, uh, it's just one of these things like something real may have happened. They could have seen something, right? But then, like, okay, how do we make money with it? Mm. Uh, and so you, you can. Man. You concoct a story that's a little bigger than what you saw. Yeah. Well, and that was the thing is when that all came out, I I was like, well, okay, I get it because that is a huge part of the book, his testimony and his journal, you know, writings and whatnot and his letters of what he claimed happened. However, that presentation we saw from Peter Robbins, he had a lot more evidence way beyond just the Larry Warren stuff. So, And the fact of the matter is, it's always so easy. The the moment you hear a little bit of cold water thrown on something, it's so easy to say, oh, well, it probably is BS then, because it's spectacular. It's uh, Just dismiss the whole thing. Yeah. You know, I had a friend, there's a a bar, a haunted bar in Chicago that I I won't name in this moment, but um, it has all these stories behind it. And I had one person tell me that like, well, I'm pretty sure the guy that owns it just knows how to market and is trying to get people in there. Aww. And I instantly believed, like, it was so easy to believe that than the spectacular thing that I would just kind of went along with it. However, that person had no evidence for that either. So why why is it so easy to believe one thing without evidence? I guess because it's just so much more plausible. But that doesn't mean that's the, the skeptic answer is the true one. It all, you know, needs to be investigated, even the skeptic side. Right. Well, you know, T, what do you think about shakers in Milwaukee? Now... Um, when you talk about places that know how to market their haunting thing, like Shakers, that's a that's a special thing they do. Yeah, uh, I think he does a really fun job with it. I mean, they've got ghost beer. You can get you <laughs> that's can go awesome. on a tour of the building. <laughs> I'm on one right now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's a it's a fun place to go. It's a beautiful old bar. It has a lot of history. I'm sure. That there is something to it, but yeah, let's set it up a little bit because I'm from Chicago. I don't know it too well, so let's like uh, paint the picture a bit. Oh, um, well, you know, it's a it's a very old bar. It was built in the 1800s. It apparently was a former brothel, um, yeah. and the the ground floor is this beautiful old saloon. And uh, there's a lot of you know stories I don't know have been substantiated or not that Al Capone was one of the owners at one time certainly possible. I don't know if it's probable and, um, all sorts of ghosts all over the place. So it has a very interesting and probably rough history. How much of the ghost stories are, uh, true or not. I don't know, but it's a fun place to hang out. It is a fun place to hang out. I just, I, I always wonder how the, um, you know, because, you always got to think with the commercialism and stuff like that, that like, Oh no, like, are they just playing it up? Because as we're all paranormal researchers here, we want to try to make sure it's like we 
we'd all love every story for Betty True. I'd love the fact that Larry Robot, you know, that Larry Warren would be anal probed in the whole deal. Like I would oh. just, I really enjoy just even thinking wow. about it. I, that, I don't mean it like, yes, I do. Oh, but, gosh. but the thing is, it's true that we tend to like, I see that like, oh, I see great marketing, great promotion. Like, oh, I bet it's not real. And you have that, it almost prejudices it in my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I yeah. know that's something that I need to well, get over because even if they got one ghost there and not right? 50, that's still one yeah. ghost. We've seen this a lot right. of times at haunted bars because they're any old place, like really old place that's got a lot of history. Chances are there might be a spirit or whatever there, but we have seen it so many times where it's like, the owners are like, oh, yeah, we got 800 ghosts in this place. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's okay. a marketing it's, angle. Yeah. Are, are you doing roll call every day? Right. It's like, wall to wall ghosts. You walk in here and you you go be tickled. <laughs> yeah. So, And then you ghosts turn around on the other side of that. Let's say that you own a bar and it's haunted and there's cool stuff happening there. Wouldn't you be excited about it, too? I'd be. Exactly. People criticize yes. the Queen Mary because they have these plaques around the building or on the uh, around the vessel or on the ship saying this is what's been spotted in this area. Like, I feel like. And people really do look down on that, that, oh, gosh, they're just marketing and they're exploiting. Like, I feel like if I owned it, that's the exact thing I would do. Not not exploit yeah. it, but just like celebrate it like that. Yep. Well, and if you're a small business, it's a way to make money, you know, like right. Uh, right. Bobby Matthews for a long time. He didn't want to have anything to do with ghosts. He didn't like the fact that people were telling ghost stories about his bar. He wanted to be known for country music. But then teams started saying, hey, we'll pay you hundreds of dollars to spend the night in your basement. And he was like, ghosts are okay with me. (laughs) Ghosts are good for business. Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. Actually, speaking of Bobby Mackey's, we do have the official paranormal team uh, in an episode. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Bobby Mackey's Music World uh, Gatekeeper Paranormal out of Cincinnati. We've had him on the show. So we got a little bit off track here, but that's that's all good stuff to discuss. But just returning to the Renaissance yes, 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 thing. Yes. So it being debunked, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely, the jury is still out for me on this one, of yes, course. Yes, of course. But one thing that we thought was really interesting was that our one of our Patreon members, uh, C.E. Martin, who recently released a book called Stranger Than Fiction that included a story uh, from one of his military friends who had been in that location. And he talked about, his fellow service people using a certain area in the woods that had it like a circle where all vehicles would stop. Oh, man. Everything would stop. Oh, Electronics, you know, the engine. And so they would use that to prank the new guys or whatever. So they, they would say like, send them on a chore in that area or whatever. And, it would- and then when their car wouldn't start, they all jumped on and tickled them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> but, you know, those saucy servicemen. So, you know, the the bringing back the pranking thing being like, you know, military guys do do that kind of thing is interesting. But also it's interesting that in his story, that paranormal aspect was there. So his friend's story basically confirmed that there was a circle that, you know, all cars wouldn't start. Things just stopped unexplained. And that's interesting in and on itself. Now I'd be interested to see like how close that area would be to where maybe the ships had landed or the ships. Had, I'm talking like an accident. I'm talking like the newscaster, like Orson Welles from World of the World. Well, the ships had landed. Well, the ships had landed. <laughs> but um, it'd be, to where they had, you know, the ships had allegedly landed yes. and they found the burn marks, how how close that would have been that would be cool to the to area where they had uh, an anomaly. Because we're talking about something that happened 39 years ago now. Right. And so uh, Chuck's friend was probably there a little afterwards. So mm-hmm. also be interested, yeah. the, the, the circle of non-car starting yeah. or whatever, was that happening before they saw the, the lights in the sky right. or after the lights in the sky? Either way, it's it's interesting and it's neat to have that tie-in yes. from that story. Either way, if you guys haven't read anything about Rendlesham, it's it's a really fascinating yes. incident. And it's good to know that our friends across the pond are not immune to the UFO phenomena either. <laughs> right. And I'm actually – I saw what Nick Pope had this to say. And David Clark's been doing research into UFO stuff for a long time. Nick Pope used to work for the Ministry of Defense. He was kind of like their J. Allen Hynek. In that he 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 wasn't a you know doctor of astronomy like Dr. Heineck was, but Nick did work for the MOD in looking into UFO cases, and he's still out there. He goes to conferences. He still writes stories and things like that. And he's like, well, you know, David Clark had, makes some points and everything like that, but there's still so much testimony uh, that from people that have witnessed these things that make it seem like a prank would be virtually impossible. Mm. That 
Nick Pope says the jury's still out. All right. And so he wrote a really good book on the subject too, by the way. Oh, it's called uh, Encounters in mm. Rendlesham. Ooh, I'm gonna have to check that one out. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, cool, cool. He's a, he's a good writer, and then everything. When you hear a British guy talk, it always sounds authoritative <laughs> too. You're like, oh man, how did that guy get smarter than me? Uh, it just you can't help. So, and my theory is that that place is so good for pranking new recruits that that's also where the Martians come to do it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> They're like, we're gonna punk some uh, Earthlings. Uh, I, oh, no, no, their own recruits. It's, oh, just, it's sure. like where all of the armed services intergalactically come to, <laughs> to uh, he's a new Martian, the, ice, the ice warriors from Doctor like Who that. come down there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, as long as Rendlesham stays in the news, I'll be happy. I all like right. seeing all these stories. Sounds good, Wendy. Well, you, you, you'll be our Rendlesham correspondent next time something happens. <laughs> right. All right. T. Krulos from Milwaukee. Hey, uh, what cool stuff did you see lately? Well, I want to talk about something at the beginning of 2018. I want to talk about something that I hope to see happen at the beginning of 2019. So let's, All right. let's go back to 2018. I have a new annual tradition. This is not quite paranormal related, but I think you'll appreciate it. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. All right. New annual tradition, which is right around January 15th or 20th, somewhere in there, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists make an announcement where they update their doomsday clock. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Like now, two minutes to midnight dun, dun, by Iron Maiden. Dun. Right, right. Now, I could just sleep in and catch this news later in the day, but I wake up early <laughs> and I watch the live stream of it because uh, I've been working on this book, Apocalypse Any Day Now. But I think I'm going to continue the tradition because it gets to be very exciting because um, you want to see where the clock is at. If it's ticking forward, which, yes, of course it is. And then to hear the reasons why, you know, they update the clock. It used to be mostly based on nuclear threat, but they've updated that to include um, environmental concerns like climate change, um, evolving technology, stuff like that. So, yes, a very heavy metal time last year was a clock ticked to two minutes to midnight for the first time since the H-bomb was invented. Wow. wow. Oh, wow. Okay, so it's, it's no, normally no. not that close no, to the end um, of the world. It's usually a good five to ten minutes out. The farthest it's ever been is, I think it was 17 minutes to midnight was um, after the Cold War ended. Oh, but so this is very, very close and getting closer. It went from, you know, three minutes to it was at two and a half minutes. And then last year's notes was at two minutes. So I'm very excited to see where we're at this year. So uh, break it down a little bit. What does exactly two minutes mean? Is there a scale of sorts? Yeah, it's just a symbolic representation of the direction that everything's going. <laughs> um, and last year, a lot of it, they mentioned... The reasoning was, uh, you know, like Donald Trump's rhetoric, other world leaders, their rhetoric, um, loosely kind of throwing around threats to each other, stuff like that. So uh, it's pretty intense and intensifying. I'm not sure this year if we're going to be closer or if they're going to, uh, my prediction is they're going to hold at two to midnight. I don't think they're going to move closer. I think it's awesome that they do that just because it's, first of all, it's, it's, it is metal AF. It's terrifying. <laughs> right. But, but second of all, it's a wake up call to people and it scares people. Like we talk about the power of mass thought. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, we've been talking about tulpas on the show uh, a lot lately. And this idea that, you know, massive amounts of belief seem to have some kind of distortion effect on reality. When you read about, though, the amount of wars in the world, the amount of crime in the world, the amount of disease in the world, actually, most of the things show that we're on an upswing as far as- Improving. As far as improving. <laughs> uh, of course, one button could change. Right. <laughs> All of yeah. Them. yeah. Big nuclear button. Not afraid to use it. And Right. And obviously, we got the dude from The Apprentice holding the f <laughs> holding the football right now. And so you got to think, we, we better hope that he doesn't think that nuclear warfare makes good TV. So I just worry that as, on some points, it's good that we're thinking about the idea of, you know, you still don't believe we're on the eve of destruction. Um, but at the second time, I'm almost a little bit like, well, uh, do we want to scare the crap out of people? Because <laughs> the, the thing is, 
with some people, like we can talk about, we can joke about it, realize that you got to pay attention to world affairs and you got to make sure these people aren't doing things that are dangerous. But at the same time, T, you've been talking to a lot of people who really believe the end is near. Yes. Um, and a lot of different ideas on that too. Um, so while I was working on this book, I talked to a really good wide range of people, um, which was really fun. So I talked to people who have religious beliefs about the world ending. Uh, I talked to climate scientists. Actually, I went out to Madison, um, to UW out there, um, because there's a really good climate studies program at UW. And so I talked to some climate scientists, like you mentioned, you know, some of the visible things we're seeing about the world changing. And so I try to get so a wide range of ideas. Some were kind of tinfoil hat, um, obviously, nice. and, and some were kind and those of... those do help, right? Yeah, I mean, they're interesting to hear, <laughs> at least, and to compare. But, you know, then I heard some stuff that was pretty sobering as well. Like, oh, yeah, this is actually a really bad direction that we're heading in. So I don't think the world's ending tomorrow or next year or even next decade, but we're not going in a, a great direction necessarily either. No, when you were talking to the, the talking to the doomsday preppers, the people who are ready, when that clock strikes, they hit the bunker, they got their canned food and stuff like that. They got their guns and they're ready to go in the bunker. Would you say, do you talk to somebody where you saw a real dichotomy between somebody who seems completely normal and completely well-adjusted and is like, hey, I got my just-in-case bunker with my bazookas and my you know canned canned beans to last yeah, until 2025. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that there is a, kind of a normal way to do it, for lack of a better term. For instance, I met this group that I really like. They're called Zombie Squad. And Zombie Squad, um, they train and they do workshops and they learn skills, but they're kind of a community-oriented group, you know? So their goal is to help their friends and their family out, help their neighbors out, and they have kind of a fun thing where they use a zombie apocalypse as a metaphor. But if you're trained to survive zombies and you're, you're learning skills to survive a hurricane, a flood, you know, mass writing, whatever. So there's a big difference between that, which I think is not a bad idea at all. And in fact, people should have some life survival skills. There's a big difference between that and a guy who's just I'm going to hole up with a ton of beef jerky and ammo and anyone steps on my property, I'm going to shoot them and I'm just going to live here in a tin can uh, until I die. That's really depressing. And I wouldn't even want to survive that, you know? Right. Sure. That doesn't really sound like a, you know, like if you guys saw 10 Cloverfield Lane, that bunker that John Goodman lends in or whatever, it just doesn't, it's like, I mean, I guess he's got board games and some videotapes, <laughs> but just like, it's not really living. Right. You right. know? But T, it sounded like, so you said, you know, from what you saw, we're not headed in a good direction, but I did sense a little bit of optimism that maybe hopefully it's not too late to change. No, I think we'll, I mean, I was, uh, I was very optimistic to see they're doing this massive ocean cleanup project. It was super cool. I, you know, I think there's, um, we can save ourselves. Like there are some smart people on the planet that can figure out a way to <laughs> turn things around. So, uh, also, so I'll, I'll give you a spoiler for the end of the book. Um, the epilogue of my book is titled, uh, I twisted my ankle and watched four documentaries on Nostradamus, uh, which is a very literal <laughs> title for the epilogue. Um, oh, no. but he predicted that, civilization is going the earth is going to survive until like the year 4000 something and even then the the world will uh be destroyed but by then we will have figured out how to live in multiple different planets so he uh, hmm. he actually you would think right. nostradamus you're thinking oh he's got this prediction for a terrible terrible end to the world but actually his uh, prediction is the most optimistic i probably heard while working on the book Wow. I was going to say, well, that, that's, words you don't usually associate are Nostradamus right, and optimism. Right. No. <laughs> well, I think that's great. And we better get that Space Force going so that space we can yeah, Space Force so we can finally conquer these planets and now live on them, just like we did with the, with the North America. <laughs> um, 
No, but that's super into like the the doomsday prepper uh, phenomena. The thing is, because every once in a while, I feel like I'm a doomsday. Like I want to like get a bunker. Like oh, is a bunker a really bad idea? Like what if it really <laughs> happens? Because I watch too many like oh apocalypse movies. Like everybody watched Bird Box. Haven't may- seen it yet. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. Well, I'm not going to spoil it for you, <laughs> but. Like 45 million people watch Bird Box, and then I watch it. So 45 million and two for me and my wife uh, watched it over the weekend. And then it's just, you're just watching another apocalyptic movie, and you're like, man, if they had all that stuff, they'd have been just fine. You know? Oh, man. So you see that, and then you, I, when you watch The Walking Dead, and The Walking Dead is the most popular show on American television, you know, the zombie squad comes in handy. <laughs> right, right. And, or the White Walker squad, depending on your show of preference, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, uh, but anyway, uh, we're going to have links and stuff like that to T's website where you can check out the cover and everything like that to Apocalypse Any Day Now. And uh, you can, you can, can you do a pre-order yet? Yes. Yeah. It's available for pre-order on my publisher's website and also on Amazon. Very cool. Okay. I have a 2019 thing though, too, that I want to talk to you about. Ooh, okay. Yes. We got okay. it. We right. got to hear it. Take. Let's so move on to this. <laughs> you, uh, you mentioned Josh Gates, right? Yes. Indeed. Yes. He's coming to Milwaukee this month. Yes. Are you going to go see him? No, we're going to be in California. Oh, okay. Well, someone has to go. Maybe it'll have to be me. Allison is going. <laughs> Our co-host, Allison. Yeah, okay. Mike's okay. Sister. Allison will go? Yeah. Okay, me and Allison are going to go see Josh Gates. Awesome. We're going to get backstage. <laughs> we're going to tell him to grab a shovel. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then we're going to Lake Park. Yes, yes, yes. Because while I was working on uh, the downtown tour, Mike, um, Wendy, you were talking oh, about yeah. The Secret, right? Right. Yes. City yes. Hall. Right here in the Bruce City, City Hall is one of the clues in this book, The Secret. And Wendy told me that I should watch Expedition Unknown, yes. which I did, and was highly frustrated <laughs> that Josh Gates know, apparently disappointing? gets inches away, probably inches away from this treasure that's been buried for 20 plus years. And he's like, well, it's raining. Yeah. I got to go to New York or wherever. Yeah, that was. I was like, no, I mean- go back there and get the treasure. Yeah, so just in case anybody hasn't heard about this book, it's called The Secret, and it's not the secret that's the positive thinking, uh, <laughs> manifesting things version. But you should you should understand the law of attraction, man. No, it's good. It's good. But <laughs> this is a book that was written, what, was it in the 70s? No, or? early 80s. Early 80s, yeah. I think, I think 83, okay. 84, something like that. And it's a combination of artwork and poetry, and it describes basically hiding places in different cities where the author buried these little treasures for people to find, but they're very difficult to figure out the puzzles. So very few of them have actually been found. And this episode of Expedition Unknown, they talked to some people who found one of them and, you know, they told the whole story and then he, he went to Milwaukee and he got like inches, like T said, <laughs> frustratingly <laughs> close. It's like, oh, so it's good about it. I'm out of here. Another part of the story is yeah. the author died. He died right. in a car crash in 2005. So he can't tell you where, he hid them, <laughs> yes. hid them too well. Yes, exactly. T, I want you to but, be the one to find it. Yes, T, you are we're rooting for you. <laughs> Seriously. Well, I know I, it was it was very thrilling to see you because I, I've walked through Lake Park many times. Um, in fact, I was very excited. This is maybe a couple of years ago. A guy lost a drone in Lake Park, and he was offering a reward uh, to find the drone. So I, you know, I had nothing to do that day. So I walked all over the park, did not find the drone. Did not find the buried treasure. But you got very familiar with the park. So yes, you're a great right. guide for someone who's yeah. <laughs> well, I, going there. I remember when we were kids, I think maybe WKTI or WTMJ had some kind of contest. Uh, so these are Milwaukee TV and radio stations. And they had a contest where you had to try and find like this mysterious item or whatever they left. And it just would give you clues. And it was somewhere in Milwaukee. And the only rule was that it was somewhere where it was – it wasn't illegal. It wasn't like inside of a building. So somewhere the public could go. And so they would just give you these clues. And my mother was super into radio contests. <laughs> so we spent several evenings going to different parks in downtown Milwaukee. My my dad and my mom were working on the clues of me and my sister. My dad, like we all tried to hunt. We didn't find it. Uh-huh. But I mean, we must have spent, I don't know, 
just a few evenings, like driving downtown, driving to all the parks, yeah. uh, driving all over the city, trying to find this, you know, this particular, like it was a snowflake. It was in the wintertime, I believe. And it was a lot of fun. Like it was a good family bonding yeah. experience. So, but, and there, maybe you won like $10,000 at the end or some wow, like prize that made it worth, good. you know, going. But uh, maybe uh, that's a you know if people want to read the secret as a family that can be their bonding experience. Yeah, and you know T makes a great point because okay, Allison's going to be there, and Allison shared an elevator ride with Josh Gates at the Michigan Paragon. That's so she's right. Practically like his best buddy. I'm surprised she didn't. I'm surprised she didn't kidnap him and bring him to the room. Like the thing is, if it was just them, I'm surprised Allison didn't like pull out a knife and said, "You're coming with me." But, you know, so between that and then T being basically knowing that park inside and out, I think you guys have a good chance. This is going to happen. This is. uh, (laughs) So how are you going to get the shovel in? Like, you got to get it past security. We figure it out. Like, maybe somebody meets you on the outside. The thing is, bring up, like, maybe we can get Josh Gates in a bag or something like that. How do you kidnap? (laughs) I've never kidnapped anybody. (laughs) It's really funny because um – from what I read, because I also read some local articles about the Expedition Unknown thing, the park really wanted him to find it because mm. they're sick of people showing up and digging <laughs> holes all over the park. So they're uh, they're like, we wish that someone would just yeah. find it already and this would be resolved, you know? <laughs> Remember, Milwaukee County Parks is also the system that was the first place in the oh, country yeah. that was going to charge yeah. people to play Pokemon Go. Really? Right. Because oh, because they are trash in the park. Yeah, I applaud that decision. Had they executed so, it. Awesome. Good stories, T. Fun. Uh, it's not necessarily fun to talk about uh, the doomsday <laughs> clock, but it certainly is interesting. And also the secret that's a fun hometown kind of story. Now, Scott, what was your favorite stuff starting off in the new year? Yeah. Well, first, before moving on, I just want to say that if anybody's uh, DVRing, I see it was uh, season four, episode four. So just last season of Expedition Unknown is the secret episode. Right. Um, however, we should not air this segment until after we've found it. Otherwise, we're just getting more competition right. for ourselves. Oh, good point. <laughs> Dear yeah. and, uh, I'm totally uh, fascinated by the doomsday <laughs> clock thing. Seeing uh, There's a great Wikipedia page for it. And I see that this currently is the clock's closest approach to midnight, matching that of 1953, which was shortly after we had our first popular atomic bomb test. But the optimism to bring to that is that was back in 1953 and we're still here. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the, the thing is, I'm imagining the doomsday clock, like if you have an Apple watch, there's like a Mickey Mouse like hands. I'm imagining it's like Mickey saying, it's two minutes to midnight. How you doing, pal? That's outstanding. Well, he's, Disney is probably thinking it's closer to midnight because I think Mickey is close to becoming a uh, public domain figure now. So they're really sweating. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for me, uh, going into the new year right away, I thought, well, what awesome horror movies do we have to look forward to? And of course, I think the big one at the top of most people's list is, of course, the follow up to it, the, the remake of it. And I'm excited to see that there is a, uh, oh, yeah, a usually fun. I'm so anti remake, especially about classics. But I'm very intrigued by the Pet Cemetery remake that is coming yeah. out later this year as well. That was definitely a favorite oh. uh, growing up. That's just the best part about the original Pet Cemetery is yeah. the Ramones. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I read that like they they thought it was kind of dumb that they had to do it. Like they didn't agree to do it, but like the manager went uh, this sure. is just a apocrypha. You know, I don't know if it's true. And so that they wrote it, it in like ten minutes. It sounds like, like it. okay, just bang it out like <laughs> I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. <laughs> they and, are but, pros. But yet they still played it live. And when we saw the Ramones yeah. Wendy in nineteen ninety six, hell yeah, oh, they played cool. Pet <laughs> Cemetery and hell yeah, I went crazy. That is really awesome. But uh, just looking back at the last week, we do have some interesting horror movie news. Uh, On the first of the year, we had a trailer release. Now, we're we're used to slashers that you can't kill, like a Jason or a Freddy, or even a possessed vehicle like Christine. But uh, the the newer version, the the modern telling of a Christine-type story is the drone. Yes, it is a killer DGI phantom, <laughs> just like we use down at the old South Pittsburgh Hospital. Uh, but it is out for blood. <laughs> it's uh, fortunately does not take itself seriously. It looks like a fantastic comedy, horror comedy, uh, buckets of blood. Mm. And it's, of course, a little bit pervy because there's a camera on there. Um, but it's yes. made by the guy that uh, directed Zombievers. So that's the pedigree for this okay. film. Okay. <laughs> and the thing is, I have seen Zombievers. I did too. Bill Burr is in the opening se- scene, so I had to watch yeah. it. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's funny. It's got, they got some good parts to it. I mean, is it Citizen Kane? <laughs> no, <laughs> just shy. Just shy. That's all right. <laughs> it's still on the AFI Top 100 list, I'm sure, though. <laughs> That's right. But uh, yeah, we dip into the world of creepy pasta, which uh, is the first place I heard about the Soviet sleep experiment short story, which involves this fictionalized idea of what happens if we keep a bunch of people awake uh, for a week on end in the dark and they become these cannibalistic psychopaths. Oh, sounds like the last sunspot. There tour. we go. I was going to say, that's what happens in the van. <laughs> Sorry. And uh, so, yeah, naturally uh, that is going to be coming to the screen. And I bring it up because it just uh, finished, it just wrapped production right before New Year's, just across the Mississippi from us over in Minnesota. And certainly when you think of terrifying horror movies, you think of one name and one name only, and that is Chris Catan, who is starring in this film. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Corky Romano. Yes. Such as Mango. Yeah. If he just plays the mango character, like being attacked, like or you know, like the the mango character being chased, like I would watch that all the time. Like mango just reacts how mango reacts, and there's like a killer coming through the wall. He's like mango. Yeah, uh, Catan's involvement took it from a, maybe I'll watch it too, I can't wait for this movie to come out. <laughs> and uh, we've already seen the first uh, bizarre viral fad uh, that to me makes me think of uh, the old, good old days of planking. And that is, of course, taking the bird box challenge. Uh, such an internet phenomenon, as, or not internet, uh, an online streaming phenomenon through Netflix. Uh, as Mike mentioned, 45 million viewers already have seen this. Uh, 45 million and two, pardon the correction. And um, yeah, so apparently people are blindfolding themselves and potentially getting themselves into trouble, into dangerous situations. But the video has got to be crap of that because like, how do they, how would you even like, I have enough trouble getting a good shot of myself when I can see. <laughs> With the screen facing you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they use the force, Luke. I have no idea what to say, but. <laughs> I think they use a third party of someone else. Oh, yeah. The tripods are involved. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if this is something that's uh, really as much of a fad as is being reported. I, I know there's all sorts of, even Netflix has put out a warning, do not do this. But is it is it really something that's happening? Are you not supposed to eat your Tide Pods while you're blindfolded or what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just don't mix it all together. So another trailer that just came out this past week, uh, January 4th, was the trailer to The Haunting of Sharon Tate. Of course, Sharon Tate and a number of her friends were massacred in August 1969 by members of the Charles Manson family. Uh, and this one, I guess the leaping off point on this is the idea that Sharon Tate has a premonition and, and it becomes this big supernatural story. The trailer is kind of intriguing. Uh, it's played by Hilary Duff. So somewhat interesting casting. Of course. Nothing like a... Uh, Hollywood royalty. Teen sensation, popish type person to take on the, the gravitas of playing Sharon Tate in her final days. But uh, she actually does look really good in the trailer. And uh, the house itself, of course, in real life is gone. Uh, bulldozed, destroyed by, can you name who? Musician. Oh, I Trent Reznor. Oh, because, oh, that's right, because he recorded... Didn't he record uh, the his biggest album, the Pretty one with machine. Downward Spiral? Downward he recorded Spiral. Downward Spiral there. Yeah, and he also recorded. I know uh, uh, Tor, uh, there was a Tori Amos recording uh, album that came out of there. Uh, Trent was her producer on that one, but uh, you know Trent Reznor approached you know the Sharon Tate house like I think a lot of people do until they really get uh, more intimately involved in the story and look into it more. It's kind of this sensationalized. Uh, you don't want to ever want to say a romantic, but it's this big sensationalized famous moment. And uh, of course, Charles Manson is a bizarre pop culture icon in some ways. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean but then, you know, once you really think about it all and, and get into how horrifying this was, uh, Trent Reznor didn't want anybody else doing what he did, which was going in there for the glory of being in this place. So he. You know, he kept the door that had the word pig written in blood on it. And then he wrote that March of the Pig song and stuff like that for a downward spiral. And like Trent is not a arbiter of good taste. <laughs> but but he had a he, he came to faith a little bit by the end of that experience. Um, so so this is interesting. How will this story be handled? 
it, it kind of looks like it becomes a slasher film, which obviously in real life it did become a slasher film. But so here's where the true story starts. Sharon Tate in 1967 was living with her then boyfriend, Jay Sebring, in an old filmmaker's house. Uh, Paul Byrne used to live in this house in the hills in, in the 1920s. And we were talking about an entirely different location. Again, this is two years before the murder, a uh, different house altogether. Uh, Jay was on a trip. Sharon was home alone. Uh, she had a dream that she didn't realize. It was so vivid and real that she didn't realize it was a dream at the time. And she came across this man kind of walking through her home. And he wasn't coming after her. He wasn't scary looking, but something in her told her that she needs to be afraid. She needs to be fearful of this. Um, the house is potentially haunted by, in, in real life, this other house was potentially haunted by Paul Byrne, who was a, uh, a writer, director in the 1920s and 30s. He was married to Jean Harlow. And just a few months after their marriage, he was found shot to death in the house. There's speculation that it was a suicide, speculation that there's murder. There's not an entire consensus on this one. But uh, so here she is, 1967, living in this haunted house, having this dream where she feels terrified by this person walking through her house. And as she walks through the house, she comes across somebody else in the home. And this person is tied to her uh, staircase, the staircase railing, with their throat slit. Hey! Yeah. She said she never saw the face in her dream, but she knew that it was either her boyfriend, Jay Sebring, or herself that she was looking at. And of course, after that, she wakes up. And then two years later, Jay Sebring and Sharon Tate end up killed on this property on Cielo Drive. Um, is it a premonition of their eventual deaths? That's what this movie is picking up on. So it remains to be seen exactly how the rest of this story is going to be handled. Uh, the, the trailer makes it seem that she has all of these visions of exactly what's going on. They also make it look like Charlie Manson himself is there ding dong ditching them or something. <laughs> so we know that didn't happen. Charles Manson himself was actually never on site. He sent his people to do his work for him. But uh, yeah, that sounds uh, like it's going to be a really fun movie. <laughs> I don't know. We talk about this, why this story, I, I suppose we understand why to some degree it's a, such a sensational and, and the Manson murders were such a big deal. And the, uh, the summer of love, it just kind of ended the, the free love era, uh, bringing it harshly back to reality. But the Manson murders and Manson himself just never leaves pop culture. Yeah, Tarantino's doing a Manson movie too, isn't he? Yeah, Once Upon a Time yeah. in Hollywood. Right. And so, I mean, I think they probably greenlit this film because Tarantino's been working on it for like two years. And so I probably they probably greenlit this film as soon as um, they figured that they could, you know, get a, a head start on the people who are excited about this story now that there's gonna be a high profile film attached to it yeah later this year and they picked the biggest star they could find hillary duff yeah it's it's i don't know and uh you, you think they could probably throw the hillary duff one together quicker than quentin tarantino can bring his cast of superstars together uh and the last one i want to talk about today the last upcoming horror movie that's uh really got me excited about the state of horror in 2019 and also a little bit worried is the movie followed it's another one that's going to handle a true life tragedy this one is much more recent and i gotta say i'm both excited to see it on the screen and i'm really nervous about it the premise of this one is it's a a blogger who decides to go and hang out at a haunted hotel to try to make his follower count go up and he picks a place that is based on the cecil hotel in downtown los angeles now this is a place i covered extensively back when I was running a tour through downtown LA. And that place is very well known because not only did German serial killer Jack Unterweger live there for a while, but also yeah. so did Richard. Yeah, exactly. But so did the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. Uh, however, this story isn't going to touch on that. It's going to talk about the much more recent bizarre death of Elisa Lam. Now, anybody that's listening to this show, there's perhaps a better than uh, average chance you've seen the really bizarre security camera footage of a girl walking into an elevator, pushing the buttons. The elevator doors don't close. She begins to act super strangely. She's apparently having a conversation with some invisible being that isn't there. Uh, very animated conversation with only one person. We never see anybody else. Eventually, she never she 
gets out of the elevator. The doors never close. And the next time she's ever seen again, her naked body is pulled from the rooftop water tower uh, on top of the Cecil Hotel. Only after, of course, people within the hotel were complaining about the strange lack of water pressure, discoloration uh, of their water. Yes. Oh, man. Now, I heard American Horror Story Hotel was also inspired by the Cecil Hotel. Yeah. And her story specifically. Hmm. Yes. I, I have not seen that season, but that is true. Uh, that was the Lady Gaga season. And uh, yeah, apparently it is somewhat inspired by uh, Elisa Lamb's tale. And uh, this is one that I know I, I get so into. We should... She does a whole thing, like a whole video on the water tank, right? Um, what? I don't know about a video in the water tank. No, I was just making a joke about Lady Gaga oh. doing a video in the water tank at Bad Taste. I, I could oh, see man. that happening. Yeah. <laughs> right, wearing her meat dress. There oh. you go. Nothing like some wet meat. Yeah. It's a stew at that point. Um, but in uh, another very interesting movie that people think maybe is based on the Lisa Lamb case is the Jennifer Connelly movie, Dark Water. However, eerily enough, that movie was shot before the Elisa Lamb case, even though so much of the movie mirrors the true story. Oh, weird. Yeah. Huh. So this... You know, and the thing about Elisa Lamb that I think is super interesting too is the fact that like she wasn't living in Los Angeles at the time, right? Correct. Like she had just come down from Vancouver like a couple days before. Yes. And uh, like nobody even knew like what she was doing in L.A. She was down as a, an exchange student. So that's why she was in Los Angeles. But that's also why oh, okay. she wasn't reported missing immediately because, hey, you know, hey, she's probably enjoying the Sunset Strip and, you know, maybe not checking in with her parents and didn't really know too many people around. Uh, so that's why she wasn't reported missing immediately. And uh, anybody that watches that video assumes that, well, she must be on some sort of drug because she looks so like she's tripping or something but not only uh did the autopsy show that she didn't have any illegal drugs in her system but she also didn't even have alcohol she was stone sober when this uh bizarre video was taken so uh getting back to the film it followed um it's it's very bizarre in the trailer to see them recreate the the security camera footage, the elevator shot. And, uh, and we also see other little clips. We see uh, our blogger over at the Pasadena Suicide Bridge, which is a place that uh, I will hopefully show when. Well, we drove past it, Wendy, uh, last year, but we'll maybe do some more snooping around there and share that on the See You on the Other Side Instagram page. But very haunted locations, uh, real life locations throughout this. And I heard an interview today with the filmmakers and they said to get ready for this movie they went on a ghost hunt to prepare and where did they go they went to devil's gate dam cool out in pasadena and that is a place that we talked about on this show episode 202 when we were talking about jack parsons strange angel so if you want to hear that (laughs) i'll I'll steal wendy's moment here oh yeah othersidepodcast.com slash 202 Nicely done. Very nicely done. I have been rehearsing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, anyway, Followed uh, is going to be an exciting one to see. I'm both um, worried, but also very excited to see uh, anytime a movie kind of brushes up against real life haunted locations and even shoots at real life haunted locations. Um, Yeah, I always love it when that happens. Now, they did not shoot this movie at the Hotel Cecil. They shot it uh, also in downtown L.A. at the Hayward Hotel and also at the Hotel Normandy. Um, so while that's not the actual hotel, both of those hotels are haunted and they did have paranormal experiences while making this film. So, uh, including a ghostly EVP of a baby crying that they absolutely were certain was not there while they were recording. So, uh, this one should come with a pretty interesting DVD release as well. Very cool. That sounds good. Oh, so much to look forward to. You guys can, you guys can see the trailers, um, in the, in the show notes for this one. I included the trailers for Haunting a Sharon Tate and uh, followed and the thing is what I think the funny part about followed is it's not just a blogger it's a a vlogger (laughs) (laughs) and I really think we need to have a better term as a culture for somebody who makes video, yes. uh, like podcasts, journals, and stuff like that. yeah, right, who journals their life as a video, not as a vlogger. Vlogger. It's like, wow, that's a that's really really well use good use of the English language, guys. <laughs> well, ever since MTV turned DJs into VJs, uh, the bar was lowered. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. right. We can. We're gonna blame it on MTV. There we go. 
Just like how they polluted our young minds and made us want to be in a band <laughs> like 30 years ago. It's watching Def Leppard videos saying, oh, man, those guys got a sweet life. How do you do that? And then uh, what you end up is... Money for nothing, yeah, right? Right. Well, that's uh, Dire Straits. <laughs> but that is the, that's what we thought was going to happen. But instead, we play songs in abandoned hospitals. <laughs> uh, and that's how it goes. All right. So uh, thanks very much for joining us today, guys. Hey, thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, T, if people want to find out more about you and more about your writing, where can they find you? Uh, Tprulos.com. And that's T-E-A-K-R-U-L-O-S. You got it. All right. So make sure you check out T's awesome writing, and he's been a guest on the podcast many times, and we're looking forward to having you back, T. Thank you, T. Thank you, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Year. Scott, if people want to find your writing and your ghost adventures, where can they find that? Uh, whatsyourghoststory.com and all over social media with What's Your Ghost Story. All right. Very cool. And, of course, we're going to have a song inspired by today's conversation. And you can find that on Spotify uh, under Sunspot. Or you can find that on Sunspot on Bandcamp.com. There'll be a link in the show notes. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about in this particular episode was this kind of, like, we... we believe some things, we don't believe others. It's either it's going to be 100% belief or then we're just going to discount it kind of thing. And I think that's a, a symptom of something larger. We especially have that in the culture war between believers and skeptics, the political left and the political right, hardcore atheists and fundamentalists. Um, this conflict has seemed to just progress from disagreeing with people about particular points of belief to like cancel culture. The idea that if someone believes something you find offensive or has done something you don't like, you want to take away their means of making a living. It's a scorched earth total war tactic that has become more and more popular in the world of social media, especially if you go on the Twitters and um, you tweet there. It's no longer enough to agree to disagree. The other side has to be shunned and disrespected. There's no room for debate or discussion. You're either with us or against us. And we see this in the paranormal world all the time between various factions of ghost hunters, ufologists, etc. Well, I don't feel that's very conducive to finding the truth because things aren't usually as absolute or black and white as we'd like them to be. And that's the idea behind this week's Sunspot song inspired by our conversation today, Us Versus Them. And Wendy, if they want to hear the sweet sounds of our band, where can they hear us? They can find our band at sunspotuniverse.com and you can find all of the show notes at othersidepodcast.com slash 230. And earlier we were talking about the book of one of our Patreons, uh, Chuck Martin's book, Stranger Than Fiction, and we love talking to our Patreons, do we not? Oh gosh, they're so much fun. Seriously. It is. And that's where we guys can get a jump start on cool paranormal topics like the kinds we talk about in the show. We can go more in depth than we can here. Um, and we can just hang out and get to know each other. Yeah. And so if you... If you would like to be part of our Patreon community, uh, you can find us at OthersidePodcast.com slash donate. What's that again? That's OthersidePodcast.com slash donate. Oh, thanks. I missed it the first time. (laughs) And we'd like to give a special shout out to one of our Patreon members, Ned. Dr. Ned pledges us at a level that he gets this custom shout out every single episode. And Ned, we appreciate your support. Thank you. And thanks to everybody for listening. Dr. Ned, we'll see you at the Club Tavern on Friday night. Everybody else, <laughs> we'll see you on the other side. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Oh, you'll know. You'll know. No. Yeah.